to the Fit and Fabulous podcast with Dr. Jamie Seaman. Hello, everybody. It's Dr. Jamie, and welcome back to the Fit and Fabulous podcast. It is so wonderful to have you with us today because I have an incredible guest that you are going to get so much out of on this episode because today's topic is one that I hear about a ton, not only from my patients, but people in my Hard to Kill Academy, people on social media. It's something that a lot of people struggle with. So please let me introduce you to Glenn Livingston. He is a PhD veteran psychologist and was a longtime CEO of a multi-million dollar consulting firm, which serviced several Fortune 500 clients in the food industry. Glenn has sold more than $30 million of marketing consulting services over the course of his career. You may have seen him or his company's previous work in major places like New York Times, Los Angeles Times, Chicago Sun-Times, Indiana Star-Ledger, New York Daily News, and more. You've also probably seen him on ABC, CBS, and other television sources. Disillusioned by what traditional psychology had to offer overweight and food-obsessed individuals, Dr. Livingston spent several decades researching the nature of binging and overeating via work with his own patients and a self-funded research program with more than 40,000 participants. Most important, however, was his own personal journey out of obesity and food prison to a normal healthy weight and a much more lighthearted relationship with food. Glenn Livingston, welcome to the Fit and Fabulous podcast. Thank you so much. Did you say the Hard to Kill Academy? Did you yeah, so I've got a book. It's called Hard to Kill. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we have an academy that goes along with it uh, where we teach I people love it. The, I love it. the pillars that I think are kind of the foundation of, of good health. So, uh, we, you know, because I, I think that medicine's not really helping people with the tools that they provide. So this conversation is a good one. Um, I think you know, out of reading your bio, Glenn, I think the most important thing here is your own personal journey, because I think that we all come from a place where we've lived and learned life experiences, right? As a psychologist, you can read all the books and tell people all the things, but um, you've you've clearly done a lot in, in these years helping people. But so tell us how you ever got into your initial problem of being overweight and obese. Oh, well, well, I'm, I'm six, four. And genetically, I'm, I'm modestly muscular is what I would say. Uh, and when I was a kid, if I worked out for a couple hours a day, 16, 17 years old, I, I could really eat whatever I wanted to. You know, boxes of muffins, donuts, boxes of chocolate bars. If it wasn't nailed down, it was fair game. And I thought it was great. I didn't think it was a problem. I was thin and tall and enjoying life, spending a little too much time in the bathroom and a little too much time sleeping it off, but teenagers do that, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, it became a problem when I went to graduate school. I was 22. I was married. I was commuting two hours each day to go to work. My metabolism was slowing down, but I found that the food still had a hold of me. Um, and it, it, I didn't have two hours a day to work out anymore. I could work out for maybe half an hour, twice a week. And I found that I would be sitting with my clients and thinking about food. You know, you're talking to a suicidal patient and thinking, well, when can I get the next pizza? Or when can I get to the deli and dislodge my jaw and empty the contents of the tray in it? And that bothered me much more than the little bit of weight that I was gaining back then. Um, I, I'm a psychologist from a family of 17 therapists, my mom and my dad and my sister wow. and my stepmom and step and in the blood. It, yeah. I can't I'm, imagine I'm, what the Christmas table's like. <laughs> well, well, if, if something breaks in the house, everybody 
knows how to ask it how it feels, but nobody knows how to fix it. That's, that's <laughs> you know, if you got a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And, and um, so that was the most important thing to me was to be a really good doctor. And I think I was a really good doctor anyway, because I put a lot into it and I read a lot and I had a lot of supervisors, um, but not as good as I could be. Like be, being a good doctor is really about lending people your soul and you, you got to be a hundred percent present in order to, order to do that. Um, coming from the family that I came from, I tried the psychological journey. I figured there must be a hole in my heart. And if I could fill that hole in my heart, then I could stop trying to fill a hole in my stomach. And I went to, uh, therapists, some of the best doctors, you know, in the New York area where I grew up. I went to psychiatrists that took some medication. I went to Overuse Anonymous for a couple of years. I went to on a spiritual journey. This, this is over the course of about 20 years. And I would be getting a little thinner and a lot fatter and a little thinner and a lot fatter. Um, working my way up at one point to almost, um, almost 300 pounds. Um, I stopped weighing myself before then. So that's why I don't know for certain because I got disgusted with myself. <laughs> um, but the, the worst thing through all of it was really the, the mental obsession. I, you know, yes, my triglycerides were high enough that the doctors were yelling at me and telling me I was going to die before I'm 40 and blah, blah, blah. But the really hardest part was the mental obsession. Um, along the same time period, I was doing all the consulting that you read about in the introduction. I was um, working with big, big food and big pharma. And I was on the wrong side of the war. I'm kind of like the Marabou man late in his life. I feel contrite about what I did, um, helping sell sugar to, you know, families and kids. And I, I just feel awful about it. Um, but I was doing that and I saw what they were doing, like how millions of dollars went into engineering these hyper palatable concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and excitotoxins and salt that were designed to hit the bliss point in the reptilian brain without giving us enough nutrition to feel satisfied. Mm. And that was my first clue. I, I didn't really wake up to it at the time, but that was my first clue that maybe overeating wasn't a psychological disease. Maybe it had more to do with um, industry taking advantage of people with good appetites, um, you know, so that every time you look for love at the bottom of a bag or a box or a container. There's some fat cat in a white suit with a mustache that's laughing all the way to the bank. It's an exaggeration. These people are not necessarily bad people. Um, there are a lot of market right, but forces. I'm trying, that to, I'm trying to picture though, they, there's uh, we won't name any names. Okay. A big food company. And they are like, let's hire a, let's hire a psychotherapist. Let's hire a psychologist to help us sell. I'm not going to call anyone out hyper palatable food that we all love or whatever it is like really a psychologist. I mean, you say like, they're not evil, but like a psychologist to sell cookies. It, like, I don't know. I, yeah. It, it, it's a little, <laughs> it, it, was, it, it was a little, I, I'm hopefully I'm not going to help it. But, You're um, sugarcoating it, this. <laughs> I'm, there you go. Very funny. You're really good with um, the words. Um, yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a little evil. Yeah. Um, you know, and I was very good at those observational studies and I could make inferences based upon what people were doing and prove them statistically. So I, I got a bunch of work from that and I made a bunch of money over the years. Um, but can you, but, will you, will you dive into, so you mentioned this reptilian brain. So can you dive into that concept? Cause obviously you knew a lot that they wanted to learn. 
So tell us um, how our brain works and how you helped them, you know, basically sell these things. I mean, because so, obviously they are addicting. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm not a neurologist or even a medical doctor. I'm a PhD psychologist, um, but I read enough to be dangerous with regards to the reptilian brain. Um, and the work that I did had more to do with seeing what was really motivating people to purchase, um, despite the social desirability bias that was involved in them telling you directly. Like you can't ask people who are using a platinum card for American Express, whether they choose that because of the prestige, because that they're going to be embarrassed. People want to think of themselves as a smart shopper. So I would design all these observational studies. And sometimes I would do these psychological interviews to find out, you know, what the products really meant to them. In terms of the way that the reptilian brain really works, that's very important for understanding how to overcome overeating because this is part of what brought me out of my personal journey also. Um, When the reptilian brain looks at something in the environment, for all intents and purposes, it says, do I eat it, do I meet with it, or do I kill it? It's very primitive. There's no love there. Um, it's, It's the mammalian brain and then the neocortex on top of that that introduces love into the equation. Before you eat, meat, or kill that thing, what impact is that going to have on your tribe or your family? What impact is that going to have on the people that you love, on your your long-term goals and dreams, on weight loss and fitness and everything else we're trying to accomplish? The way that our brains are set up, when the reptilian brain perceives there to be a survival emergency, it's it has the capacity to push our rational brains out of the way. So, and we've got, um, we've got this emergency nervous system that gets us revved up for action and the reptilian brain is part of it. You can, I think you're a medical doctor. You can correct yep. me if I'm yep. saying, uh, but the reptilian brain is part of that. And when it perceives there to be an emergency and, or when it perceives there to be resources that could be valuable in an emergency, it will push our rational brains out of the equation. And so this, this is why people can read a diet book and listen to your podcast over the weekend and be, uh, have the best of intentions and feel genuinely committed. But then on Monday afternoon, when they're in Starbucks and there's a chocolate bar on the counter, they start to think, well, you know, chocolate grows on a cocoa bean and it's a vegetable. And I, I worked out hard enough and I'm not going to gain any weight if I just have a little bit. And it's really, it's just going to be a little, that could start my silly, silly diet tomorrow. That That's what's happening there is, is the, Reptilian brain says, oh, calories. We need calories and nutrition. Now, the the more that's genuinely true, if you're not regularly, reliably uh, flooding your body with uh, enough calories and nutrition, then those, um, those irrational thoughts are going to be louder. Your brain is going to push for you to be less discriminating. Another way of mm-hmm. saying that is that the reptilian brain will hold more sway if you have erratic nutrition. So like what you do and the way that you help people to um, stabilize and, you know, make their nutrition reliable and regular, it's critical for overcoming overeating. Um, There are a lot of other things you can do to interfere with that process and get back into your mind anyway. We'll we'll talk about that in a little bit. So are you saying that the reptilian brain, if we're eating a lot of nutrient poor foods, we're eating a lot of food, but we're not giving it truly what it needs it will just say, go find more. And then you have a hard time saying no to just food in general. If you have a box of donuts for breakfast, 
Um, mm -hmm. In addition to the sugar high and the sugar low that you're going to create and the you know, destabilization of your blood sugar for the rest of the day, right. you also didn't get the nutrition you needed for breakfast. And so, of right. course, your brain is going to say, we need that. Of course, it's going to do that. Um, right. And so a lot, of, a lot of the people we work with are genuinely surprised that it's, it's not just the, we use a lot of cognitive techniques where we reframe the way that you're thinking about those excuses. For example, if you say, uh, it would be just as easy to start tomorrow, turns out that it's not. Because when you have a craving and you indulge the craving, you're strengthening that, that connection. Mm. And the craving will be stronger and the thought will be stronger tomorrow also. You'll be more likely to say, let's start tomorrow, tomorrow. So if you're in a hole, you got to stop digging. That's an example of a cognitive reframe. Um, we call it a refutation and um, with some other kind of fancy names for it. But but the bottom line is those are very effective because they remove the justification and then it's no longer psychologically comfortable to indulge. But if you don't have the right nutrition, your brain's going to say, screw it, you better do it anyway. So you, mm -hmm. you, you kind of have to do both things. Yeah. Interesting. Did I answer your question about the um, the neurology? Yeah. So, yeah. so, so I mean, that, that was part of what woke me up personally because I said, well, the food industry is creating these things that turn off our ability to sense when we're hungry or full, um, that give us, that stimulate the bliss point in the brain without giving us nutrition to feel satisfied. Um, the reptilian brain, which seems to be responsible for food addiction in the first place, doesn't know love. So how can I possibly love myself thin? Here I am spending decades going to, sorry, a little bug, going to therapists and, um, you know, and digging deep into my own personal psychology, which was a wonderful journey, by the way. I learned an awful lot about myself. Um, but, but the reptilian brain doesn't know love. This is, this is not a matter of love. This is, this is a matter of how do you get back into your rational brain so you can dominate the, um, dominate the reptilian brain and make, make good on your decisions and commitments. That's, it was more about that. Okay. Tell yeah. us how these particular foods hijack the brain. I mean, what do they, what do they do to our brains when we're eating, eating these hyper palatable foods that have no nutrients in them? That, I mean, uh, we're, that we really all just love, right? They taste delicious. Well, we didn't have chocolate bars on the Savannah, like for 99.99% of our evolution. We didn't have the concentration of um, sugar and fat and theobramine and stimulants that wasn't available on the savannah. It's it's really kind of like a drug. I mean, it's perfectly legal. Is the Obermain, that, that's in Mountain Dew, right? I don't know if it's in Mountain Dew. I, I, think I know is. it's in chocolate. I know it's in okay. chocolate. Okay. Um, we is didn't have Mountain your Dew. your kryptonite? On, is that your kryptonite? Was, oh my God. Oh my God, it was, yeah. Oh my God, yeah. I, I eventually had to give it up. I, most of the people I work with don't have to give it up, but um, yeah, chocolate is- Okay, this kryptonite. is- this is a total, this is a total side, a side note from, we'll get back to this exact conversation in just a second. I just got back from Maui, Hawaii, first of all, amazing, incredible, but we visited a uh, cacao farm and I learned so much about chocolate and I'm not a huge chocolate person to begin with, but I will just let you all in on a little secret. When they take the cacao bean and they, uh, they ferment it for like a week and then they chop it up into the cacao nibs. Um, when, when you put those cacao nibs in a jar, the cocoa butter starts to separate like from the nib and they showed us this jar and, and the cocoa butter, uh, is, is part of the fat that's in normal chocolate that comes from the cacao beans. So commercial, um, chocolate manufacturers in the U S we won't say their names, but 
they they rhyme with uh I can't even think anything that rhymes with it. (laughs) (laughs) You know who they are. They make all the Halloween candy. They take the cocoa butter out of the product and they sell it to the cosmetic industry and they replace the cocoa butter with vegetable oils. So traditional Halloween candy, well, all candy, um, it's not just Halloween candy, all candy bars in the U.S. um, are not real chocolate. They are sugar, vegetable oil, and a little bit of the cacao bean. But I was mind blown by this. So like real chocolate, like, so if there's somebody listening, that's like, I'm a chocolate connoisseur, whatever it is. Yeah. It contains the real cacao butter and there's more nutrients in it and, and all that. Okay. So we've established Glenn Livingston was addicted to chocolate. Now you've heard why commercial chocolate is so bad for us. Let's get back to what we were talking about. We were talking about how they hijack our brain. Um, well, so when the brain, fi- we're not evolutionarily prepared to deal with that level of stimulation. Um, you know, just like we're not evolutionarily prepared to, um, you know, deal with the, with cocaine. We're not evolutionarily prepared to deal with pornography. We're not evolutionarily prepared to deal with such a concentrated stimulus. And what, what happens is a phenomenon called downregulation. So when you're exposed to a hyper stimulus or hypopalatable stimulus in this case, um, but like a supersized stimulus, like, like in graduate school, I slept underneath the subway. I had an apartment in Astoria, Queens, and it was right underneath the subway. Well, for about two weeks, I couldn't sleep at all. Every time a subway would come by, it would wake me up. It was so loud. But after a while, your brain down regulates. It says, that's not such an important stimulus. I'm not going to, I'm not going to respond with the same level of alertness and mm. urgency that I did before. Interesting. Same thing happens with the pleasure system. If you have a chocolate bar every day, that's an unnaturally concentrated um, stimulant and your brain is going to down regulate the amount of pleasure that you get from that chocolate. Eventually you need that concentrated form of pleasure in order to feel normal. It, it's, it's like you can't get pleasure at all from fruits and vegetables, which is, you know, most people know that if you're going to lose weight, you're going to have to have some more fruit and vegetables. But when you're having all of these hyper palatable foods, your taste buds and your pleasure center down regulate so much that it feels like chocolate or potato chips or wh- whatever your particular poison is, is the only thing that's going to give you any pleasure. And so that's how the, that's how the addiction, you know, kind of takes hold. Um, the good news is, is that as far as I can tell, it's not a chronic, mysterious, progressive disease. Um, it, it's reversible. <laughs> it's reversible. If you, if you stop eating so much hyperpalatable food and I, I don't insist that everybody gives it all up. I think, you know, you can make choices um, to enjoy you know, a certain amount of, of this food if you want to. Um, some people can, some people can't. Yeah. I was but, just about to say that I've had people who are abstainers and people who can. There are abstainers and, and like- moderators. Yeah. Pre- I, about, um, about one third of the people I work with seem to be abstainers and about two thirds seem to be moderators. And it varies from substance to substance. There's someone like, I can't really have chocolate. I'm going to, I've experimented. I can do it. I have to go through all sorts of gyrations to make sure it doesn't get out of control and it's just not worth it for me. Um, other people can have, you know, my sister can have two little squares 
and put it back in a person's hand. We have the rest so later. Interesting. You say this. <laughs> yeah. Cause I, I mean, I would like to think I'm a moderator, but there are certain things that I know if I'd have one bite, it's just this constant yeah. overwhelming thought, like until the whole bowl is gone or out of my view or there's no way. None is a lot easier than some for at least a third of the people with, with different substances. Yeah. Yeah. So, but there's a phenomenon called upregulation also. So if you stop having chocolate or you have much less of it, then your taste buds should double in sensitivity over six to eight weeks and your pleasure system should reestablish themselves. And you will experience life as boring for a couple of months because you're used to all the hyperstimulation. Um, but if you can tell yourself that the only way out is through, and there really is a heaven on the other side of that, of that boredom, then, um, then there really is a heaven on the other side of that boredom. Then, you know, like, like at this point, I can tell the difference between a Fuji apple or a Gala apple or romaine lettuce versus spinach. And I, I really genuinely do get pleasure out of those yeah. things. Um, but most people, I was typically, you don't have to believe me. You just have to try it because most people won't believe me at this point. Yeah. yeah. So is food addiction similar to other addictions like gambling? I mean, you mentioned some other things that we just aren't evolutionarily, say that nine times, evolutionarily prepared for. I mean, is, are they the same? Is it the same pathway in our brain or? Well, um, I think it's largely the same pathway, but I think it's important to note that um, I don't see the evidence that addiction is a disease. I think okay. addiction is, is a well-worn groove that takes advantage of the brain's capacity and interest in automating behavior um, and automating the location of resources. I think that the longer that you dig that groove, the harder it is to dig it yourself out of it and the more painful it is to dig yourself out of it. But I still think it's a choice. And I, mm -hmm. I'm always concerned about people promoting the notion that, you know, you have to admit that you're powerless or that it's a disease or that, yeah. you know, you're really sick. I, I think that we are, we overeaters are people with healthy appetites that have been hijacked by industry. That's, that's what I think. That's fascinating. Cause as you started to say that, that it's not a disease, I'm thinking to myself, like, how is it not a disease? Cause the definition is when you, when you choose to continue a behavior, when you know, there's ramifications, you know, when you know that there is uh you know, this is going to cause me but, to be but, bankrupt. But, but, but then you still... said it's a choice and I'm like, okay, that, you're right. You're right. Like it's, you're still perpetually choosing. Well, take a person with tuberculosis and put them in a prison cell and that tuberculosis gets worse. Take, so take someone who's addicted to alcohol and put them in a prison cell mm. and that diagnosis gets better. Interesting. Right. So yeah. it's, it's not an internal process that Great gets analogy. worse on its own. It requires consistent choice. Yeah. That's, that's why. That's why. Yeah. Interesting. Um, okay. So, so are we, so you're saying it's not a disease. We're not really addicted. So tell me the difference between, cause some female patients, so I'm an, I'm a OBGYN, so I only take care of women and they say, uh, I do it for comfort. I do it for, you know, I've worked really hard today. Um, so is it addiction or is it comfort or is that just there, there, there's a lot there's a lot in that question so it's going to take me a minute to answer that okay. if that's okay yeah um, addiction means the love of addiction means that that's classically what it actually means and it's Glenn a, loves chocolate <laughs> <laughs> you get, get a big um 
T-shirt for you. When the body, when the digestive system is overloaded with digestive tasks and toxins to process, the neurological system has more difficulty conducting the emotions. So there is a quote unquote numbing or anesthetic effect of food that people associate with comfort, right? And also overeating takes you out of the discomfort of being too hungry, puts you into a whole other kind of discomfort. But that's not the whole picture. And people leave themselves astray when they think that they are just numbing out. And I kind of joke around with people sometimes and I say, well, when you go to the dentist, does he ever say, I'm out of Novocaine, is it okay if I inject you with a bagel? Would that be okay? Because the bagel does something more than just numb you out. You, you, don't, you don't need a bagel to get numb. You, you're eating the bagel for that concentrated experience of pleasure. Another way to say that would be that you're getting high with food. So there is the anesthetic effect, but then there is also the escape to the high that you would have with a drug. And if you're willing to reframe that um, for yourself as a person who might uh, numb out too much, quote unquote, and say, I'm not numbing out, I'm, I'm getting high with food. If you're willing to reframe that, it's less likely that you'll do it because most people don't like to think about themselves as drug addicts. Mm -hmm. Now, but there's one more part of the equation that most people don't understand. Let's take, um, let's take anxiety, for example. People will say, I'm an emotional eater. When I get too anxious, I have to eat something, particularly at night. I have to eat something or I can't go to sleep, usually a lot of carbs. I say, well, okay, so you're experiencing that anesthetic effect of food, but did you know that the food is also creating the anxiety? Like if you look at animal studies where you measure the physiological correlative anxiety, like high blood pressure, for example, you can also measure perspiration, respiration, galvanic skin response, all that kind of thing. But if you measure those things and you give an animal a sugar reward, there's a study with baboons where this was done. You give them a sugar reward whenever they have higher blood pressure, the group of baboons, which is given the sugar reward for high blood pressure, has consistently higher blood pressure. It goes down for a little bit as soon as they get the reward, but it goes up overall when they measure it. So probably what's happening is your brain is learning to manufacture those feelings so that it can get the sugar reward. You've taught, you've taught your body that it gets rewarded when it has these feelings. And so if you're willing, uh, you know, what we experience with most of our clients who, who buy this theory, and I can't prove this in front of a dissertation committee yet, but when they are willing to do this, when they say, okay, so my brain says I won't be able to sleep. So then what if I don't sleep for a couple of nights? Brain says, I can't sleep. Okay, I won't sleep. Well, it turns out like a week or two later, they're sleeping like a baby again. Um, but they did have to go through that discomfort because there was this reinforcing effect of the food on the anxiety. Mm -hmm. um, we, we separate our constructive versus destructive thoughts about food by using a very clear, hard and fast food rule, like I'll only have chocolate on Saturdays or something like that, so that we know that any particular thought that I have uh, during the week, you know, gee, I know it's a Wednesday, but you're not going to gain weight because you worked out hard. Uh, we call that, we call it a squeal. I, I shouldn't have done this, but when I first recovered, I called my inner destructive reptilian brain. I call it my, my, uh, my inner pig. I, I, I wasn't going to teach it. I just, um, I shouldn't have done that, but that's what I call it. I said my pig was squealing for slop and 
now there's over a million people that use uh, that point at, yeah they <laughs> point, point at me and say you're you're the pig guy you're the pig guy um I'm going to try to change that soon, but anyway, I could, it works just as well to call it a food demon or a food monster. But the point is that I have people separate from their destructive thoughts with a very clear rule so that any thought that suggests that I'm going to break that rule becomes my pig squealing for its, for its slop. And that, what that does is it wakes me up at the moment of impulse. Um, so what I tell the people who are struggling with emotional eating or comfort eating is that at some point you're going to have to recognize that as a squeal. Your pig is saying the only way to deal with these emotions is to overeat, but you're going to have to tell her that you're willing to feel any level of discomfort in order to eat healthy and stay with your role. Um, and that that's part of the recovery from emotional eating. It's, um, I can't stress this enough. One of the pivotal insights for me when I got better was recognizing that I had to sever the link between emotions and overeating much the way you would contain a roaring fire with a very good fireplace. It's not that I had to put out the fire or solve all the emotional problems. I had to sever the link so that my emotional problems were a thing separate and apart. Mm. Um, and they didn't have the ability to do damage anymore. And I I'm still a psychotherapist. I thoroughly believe in, you know, um, in catharsis and deep analysis. And, you know, I'm a compassionate person. If you need a hug, I have a hug for you. But I don't have any compassion for your inner food monster, for, for my inner pig. That, that thing only wants to break my rules and make my life miserable. Interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm well aware of the anesthetic effects of glucose because in the newborn nursery at the hospital, we use glucose uh, drops in the baby anytime a procedure is performed to give them an anesthetic-like effect. Um, <laughs> even, even though we use local anesthetic, we, we oh, that's so interesting. sugar drops. Yeah. That's so interesting. So, um, what about people who are listening right now and they're like, no, I'm not addicted to food, but I've tried a thousand different diets and I've failed all of them. Mm -hmm. Is that the same thing? Um, I mean, there, there is a DSM five clinical definition of binge eating and, you know, clinically significant eating disorders. Um, and, you can look at that and evaluate whether you pass that definition or not. But why? I wrote an article about this in Psychology Today. What, why, why do we want to do that? Um, according to that definition, somewhere between two and four percent of the population has a has the quote unquote disorder. But let's say you don't have the disorder and you're still eating beyond your own best judgment. Given that the techniques we're talking about are not intrusive, don't require a diagnosis, don't require an insurance company reimbursement, you know, don't require any pills or procedures or potions or anything like that. Why wouldn't you want to very clearly define what healthy eating is for you? Like start with one simple rule. Um, start watching for your brain to come up with reasons to break that rule. And then when you hear that reason, write it down and ask yourself what's wrong with what your food demon or your food monster or your inner pig is saying and refute it. Like what, why wouldn't you want to do that? So I, I think there's much too much emphasis on, am I addicted or not? And not enough emphasis on, am I eating beyond my own best judgment and what should I do about it? Do you think that working with, with patients and clients that, uh, I was just talking about this exact 
idea with somebody else on another podcast earlier today. When you give a patient a diagnosis, like you have hypothyroidism or you have binge eating disorder, do you feel like people kind of use that as their narrative? Like I've got this problem. That's why I'm this way. Is that, it like just constantly reinforces itself. It it can be permission to, Mm -hmm. well, I'm a real sicko. I can't help myself. The, The devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. It I, I think it's u- them from responsibility. Like, I think it's useful for research, like to understand what that clinically significant entity is and whether there are medications that can help and whether they respond any differently to intervention than, you know, people who are eating just beyond their own best judgment or less seriously. But um, I think it can be an enabling, um, disempowering thing to give someone a diagnosis. I do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think, I think there's sometimes harm in it, you know? Um, okay. So this is, uh, this is, so you wrote a book called never binge again, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so this is, this is from your website. If you struggle with binge eating, emotional eating, stress eating, or if you repeatedly manage to lose weight only to gain it all back, somebody listening is definitely resonating with that. You may be approaching things with the wrong mindset. Most contemporary thought on overeating and binging focuses on healing and self-love, but people who've overcome food and weight issues often report it's more like capturing and caging a rabid dog than learning to love their inner child. So this is the pig that you're talking about, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Open the cage, even an inch, it'll quickly burst out and destroy your healthy eating plans, undoing all your progress in a heartbeat. So let's tell people uh, kind of the actionable steps. They're hearing what you're saying. I like this idea. Okay. How do they, how do they start this process? You start, start with one simple rule. Uh, as long as your doctor doesn't say it's urgent for you to lose weight. I, I usually actually tell people to put off losing weight for a couple of weeks while they learn this, um, because it's most important to get control, um, than to, if you're trying to lose weight quickly, it's going to be harder to play the game. So it's more important to learn how to play the game first. Um, but only if your doctor says that's okay. And come up with a simple rule. It could be, I'll always put my fork down between bites. It could be, I'll never have chocolate on a weekday again. I knew a guy who lost 150 pounds starting with, um, I'll never go back for seconds. He was a trucker. He had to eat at fast food places three times a day. But he said, I'll tell you what, I'll never go back for seconds. Um, I will never eat in front of a screen again. I'll only have pretzels in a major league baseball game. Uh, the, the limit is your imagination, but make sure that you have operationalized the rule in such a way that 10 people who watched you and followed you around all month would agree whether you did it or didn't. <clears throat> so for example, I'll eat when I'm hungry and stop when I'm full is not a rule. It's a guideline because when you're hungry is subjective, when you're full is subjective. It's a good idea to eat when you're hungry and stop when you're full, Yeah, but <clears throat> it won't work with this technique. You're looking for objective things. Then what I want you to do is wait for your inner food monster, whatever you want to call it, to cry for you to break the rule. <coughs> It'll have some really good reason that you should break the rule. When it does. You mean like I Easter want, candy? <laughs> like like Easter candy. Oh, oh, come on. It's Easter. It's only once a year. It's not going to hurt that much, right? Um, when it does, I want you to go, whoa, I want you to wake up. It's almost like, well, who's in charge here? And I want you to breathe in for a count of seven and breathe out for a count of 11. Inhale for seven, exhale for 11. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's called the 7-11 breath. I got that from Laura Hammond. When 
if, if there was a genuine emergency, if you're being chased by a tiger or something like that, you'd be breathing as fast and hard as you could, right? So when you breathe out for longer than you breathe in, you're signaling your brain that there's no genuine emergency. Remember, breaking your own best judgment is usually a sign that your brain is perceiving there to be even a mild emergency. So you, you want to calm yourself down at that point. If you can bear doing it three times, that's great. One time is enough. Then ask yourself, okay, Mr. Pig or, you know, Mr. Food Monster, why do you want me to break my rule and indulge this craving? And wait to see what it says. Write down everything it says. Write it down as if it's talking to you. You might hear initially, well, I this or I that. Change that to it talking to you. So you could just start tomorrow. Um, you worked out hard enough. Um, it's Easter. You always eat these things on Easter, right? Take, take the I pronoun out of it. Take another 7-Eleven breath because it's a little excitatory to hear, give the pig a chance to say what it wants to say. And then ask yourself, why is it wrong? And write that down also. That's the essence of the technique, right? Um, one little bite won't hurt. Well, one little bite always hurts. Um, you know, I, I, one little bite is the difference between who's in charge, me or you, Mr. Pig. And I, I want to be the master of my own fate, the determiner of my own destiny with food. If I decide that I want to have an Easter bunny tomorrow, then I'll put it into my plan. I'll write it down as an exception to the rule and I'll wait 24 hours for it to take effect. I'm not going to let you impulsively convince me to do things anymore. And that, by the way, is the essence of recovery. The essence of recovery is not that you quit chocolate. The essence of recovery is that you've moved emotional, whimsical, impulsive decisions about difficult food triggers from your emotions to your intellect. That, that's the essence of recovery. So that's fascinating. That, that, yeah. Those are the steps and as basic as a form I can, as I can put them. So it's, it seems like we're reframing in a way to kind of think like a healthy person. So mm -hmm. is it possible that if somebody masters this technique for dealing with their binging or, or food addiction, can you apply this to other areas of your life? Oh, sure. Sure. Any place that you can define a black and white rule, black and white line for. So for example, um, I will have, I will have a hundred thousand readers for my new book by January 1st, right? That That's a goal with a very specific outcome that I'm looking to achieve. Now, anything that my um, positive thinking or my negative thinking pig would say to suggest that that's not going to happen becomes a negative thinking squeal. And I can refute that. Um, the area that I would suggest that you don't use this for is drugs and alcohol. The reason for that is I don't, nothing we talked about today wouldn't work for drugs and alcohol, but my work, my work has a component in it that the people who really do well with drugs and alcohol don't. Um, because food is something where you have to take the lion out of the cage and walk it around the block three times a day. Um, whereas drugs and alcohol are things you can quit entirely. Yeah. I had to make a lot of modifications for that. And I teach people to commit with perfection, like a archer aiming at the bullseye, seeing the arrow going into the target, you know, before they release the arrow. But then if you miss 
the target to forgive yourself with dignity. When you're dealing with drugs and alcohol, that kind of forgiveness can be dangerous because you could get behind the wheel and, you know, maim or kill somebody, mm-hmm. and blow up your finances or do all kinds of horrible things. So, so um, there's a little bit more of a moral component that goes into recovering from drugs and alcohol than recovering from food. But otherwise, anything that has a, um, where you can draw a black and white line. I've got a lot of parents that say, I will never yell at my kids again. And then they use it to do that. Um, yeah, a- anything. That's interesting. I always joke that I'm I'm like the uh, T Rex, and my husband's like the Easter Bunny when it comes to parenting. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm the like, I would need that. It's like the T Rex is coming out. Um, very interesting. Very interesting. I actually gave up uh, alcohol, uh, my husband and I, on October first for a year. Not that we had a problem. It was just we wanted to experience 365 days, all the times of the year, and just kind of almost along the lines of this concept, like just start to see where in our lives that we were using it and why we were using it. Was it adding value to our life? Was it taking it away? You know, I'm a health practitioner. So I'm like, we know that alcohol is really horrible for us. It like shrinks our brains. So why do I use it so socially? And like, why is it so so socially accepted? It's just crazy. Um, Once we don't drink anymore, how pervasive we have realized it really is in our society. Uh, And hyperpalatable food too, right? I mean, People, if you if they caught you in the bathroom at work doing cocaine, uh, the gossip mill would be running hard. But if they, you know, caught you eating six donuts out of the break room, I feel like people would say less. Yeah, there um, there's no overeaters prisoners. You're not going to wake up in a cell with four gray walls and a your new husband Bubba, um, <laughs> <laughs> because you had too many donuts. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. Um. So, how successful is this, Glenn? Did you um, relapse at any point? Is it always a constant struggle? Is this something, you know, people really have to try to be perfect at the rest of their lives? So there, the word relapse implies that there's a disease. Um, there were times along the way when I might have reversed my intent and chosen to have chocolate again um, with similar consequences. Although as time went on, if I did that, the damage would be dramatically mitigated to the point that I just didn't do that anymore. Um, if you look at the research on extinction of behavior, if you remove the reinforcement, which is the indulgence of behavior, eating the chocolate, then there is a curve that reliably happens in most human and animal studies where at first there's a honeymoon period um, for every exposure, which could be daily, in the case of chocolate, it was. So for, every, for the first couple of days, it goes way down, and you don't experience the cravings that much, and you feel like you're on cloud nine and like you really did it. And then your brain says, holy crap, he's trying to change something. Maybe he's going to die if I let him let go of this behavior. And it jumps up and it tries to get the chocolate again. So people should expect that and not expect that it should just go straight down. If you stay with it and you keep going, then it goes all the way down and it kind of peters out with little tiny spikes for a while until you don't experience it at all. Um, on a practical basis with chocolate, once I finally stopped, um, which was years and years and years and years ago, I, uh, for the first two months, it was very painful. Um, I experienced a lot of those bursts. Um, after that, I'd say it was about 20% as difficult as it used to be, or 80% better. Um, after about six months, I 
hardly experienced the craving. I still kind of remembered what it was. And then after, after about 18 months, I felt like chocolate's just a big bar of chemicals. I'd look at it and I'd wonder why I wanted it anymore. Um, so you can rely upon that kind of an extinction curve if you follow through with it. If you get cocky and say, oh, I think I've got this, I'm going to go back to having chocolate, you're starting back at the beginning of the extinction curve again. But you can rely on that curve happening if you, if you follow through with the um, lack of reinforcement. Um, Do you think that um, it's important to have the stimulus present often or to remove it? And what I'm saying is I had a coworker one time who, if she had a candy bar on her desk every day and looked at it, she actually did better at abstaining from it. Whereas if I had a, a bowl of candy there and I, the once I start with the first piece, then it's slippery slope. I'm, an, I'm, I'm better off being an obsceneer, but what I'm saying is like, I feel like your home should be your safe place. So I'm, I'm a former car, carb addict. I am. I had prediabetes. I, yes, if it is in my pantry, I'm in the danger zone. I won't drive to the grocery store. I'm good. I won't go through the drive-thrus. I do pretty dang good even in the break room at work, but in my own house, it's very difficult. I'm going to say two things that sound contradictory and then I'm going to put them together. Okay. Um, the overall philosophy that seems to work um, with my system anyway, is to cultivate confidence and bravado. Um, so, that. you know, at this point, you could fill my bathtub full of chocolate and throw me in it and I wouldn't have any. Okay. And I, I feel very confident with that. Um, however, in the early stages of recovery, the research does indicate that when you uh, minimize the stimuli, that you're more, more likely to develop the new patterns. So uh, there's a whole, there's a guy named Brian Wasink who does research at Columbia, I think, wrote a book called Mindless Eating, who talks about getting everything um, out of sight and the people are much less likely to have it then. I, I really see that as being the training wheels that we use on the way towards bravado. Um, you have to be careful you, you want to, you don't want to cultivate fear. You want to cultivate confidence. So I, right. you know, we, we had a woman once who came like through that. and she had, I like it too. She, she had, um, she had her children lock her in her room at night so that she couldn't get out and raid the kitchen. And oh I, I think that's too far. I think that's going too far to eliminate the stimuli. I, I once had a friend who was gaining like 20 pounds a month and, you know, she would give away her wallet and credit cards and, you know, not let, not, not let herself use the phone. She'd give it to a friend so that she couldn't order because she couldn't trust herself. That leads to a very frightened position in the world. And it's also a very low view of humanity. You know, civilization is based on a part, upon our ability to uh, regulate our impulses. So I think that we have to believe that this is all possible, but to give ourselves a period of time for a couple of months, you know, don't go by the bakery that gets you every time. Go, don't go by the pizza place. Maybe don't watch TV for a couple of months so you're not totally stimulated all the time. Um, have the kids put the chips and the ice cream in a separate part of the refrigerator or, or cabinet. Um, stay away from stimulation for a couple of months while you're changing your habits and then slowly reintroduce it in a systematic way while you build that bravado. Interesting. Yeah. I'm almost thinking like in my mind, it's like start as an abstainer and then figure out if you're really in the two thirds that can be a moderator or if you have to stay an abstainer. <laughs> you know, like I, I do have people that do that. I, I do have people who, um, 
give up sugar and flour for 90 days and then come up with very specific boundaries around when they can have it. Like, you know, I can have one dessert of my choosing on the weekend if I want to. Um, and I do have people is there, who are successful Is there science that. behind that? I, I hear people say you have to do it for 60 days to form a habit or 20 days or 90 days. Is there really science behind that? Not, not that I can see. Yeah. Not that I can see. Um, it sounds there's nice. some research around the 66 <laughs> day mark. Um, but what is scientific is that uh, decisions require willpower. And we only have so much willpower every day. And most people think of the decision as do I have chocolate or don't I have chocolate? Or do I have sugar or don't I have sugar? Um, and if they're in a point where they think it's okay to have sugar, then there aren't really any boundaries on it. And as a consequence, they're trying to regulate, well, I'm just going to have a little bit. Let's see how much feels good. And they're making a million decisions about it, wearing down their willpower. Whereas if you say, I'm only going to have one dessert on Saturday or Sunday, but not both, then, and, and only one serving, and you can even define the serving size, then you've got boundaries. You can think of it as like shooting for the second rung of the archery target, like maybe every day you shoot for the bullseye, but on, you know, on the weekend you shoot for the second rung. That second rung, you still know where it begins and ends. The benefit of that, by the way, is not only that you don't have to make a decision, but if you do miss, you know, by how much and in what direction so that you can make necessary adjustments for next time. You're taking advantage of a learning opportunity. If you're aiming at a diffuse target, then you don't really know how to use that feedback. So, um, I do have people who go from being an abstainer to go to becoming a moderator. Becoming a it's, um, it's not common, but it's possible. Fascinating. Okay. So, uh, we're going to move into the last segment of the podcast called the semen analysis. And I see so much debate on social media about sugar addiction. We've kind of debated this, right? Like, is it a disease? Is it not a disease? Are you addicted? And of course I think of addiction as like a physical dependence, right? Like an alcoholic, <laughs> if you take it away, it's, it's life threatening to them. Like this analogy you gave. Um, so I pulled, there's a, a recent, uh, narrative review in the British, uh, journal of sports medicine and, uh, actually written by Dr. James DeNicolantonio, who has uh, been on my podcast before. Um, he's actually a, a, a pharmacist researcher, but he was quoting animal studies where sugar was found to produce symptoms that, um, uh, more symptoms than is required to be considered an addictive substance. And the animal data shows significant overlap between the consumption of sugar and drug-like effects, including binging, craving, tolerance, withdrawal, cross-sensitization, cross-tolerance, cross-dependence, reward, and opioid effects. Sugar addiction seems to be dependence to the natural endogenous opioids that get released upon sugar intake, both in animals and humans. The evidence in the literature shows substantial parallels and overlap between the drugs of abuse and sugar. And from the standpoint of brain neurochemistry, as well as behavior. But I think regardless of, of uh, how you slice it <laughs> or what I think or, or uh, what Dr. Livingston thinks, I think what you have given us is an incredible tool to change the way we think about the behavior um, around these things. Well, and, and what that says is that the more you have it, the more you want it. That there's a wide variety of physiological, um, very real phenomenon in the brain that create um, the possibility of you having it more and more and more, the more that you have it. Um, as far as I know, people don't die from withdrawing from sugar right away, do they? Is, no. is, if you're having a candy bar every day, is there any reason that you're going to die if you don't have it tomorrow? No, I mean, you think about, you know, uh, uh, 
even an obese diabetic or something like that, if you withdraw sugar, the blood sugar actually starts to normalize rather rapidly, you know, which is why I'm a huge fan of metabolic and ketogenic therapies. And, and, you know, I have never in my life had a patient come in and say, oh my gosh, doctor, last night I realized I woke up and I went out to the kitchen and I ate uh, three pounds of rotisserie chicken last night. Never in my life have I had a patient ever say that. Oh my gosh, I ate four pounds of salad and three bags of carrots and an entire Costco carton of blueberries. Never in my life have I ever had a patient say that. But the stories that I hear from patients are, you know, I made an entire box of cake mix batter and I ate the entire bowl. I licked the entire bowl clean. I ate an entire package of Oreos. I got into my kids' Halloween candy and I, every last piece, you know, I've just, this is my own anecdotal evidence, but I just have never in my life heard of anybody overeating it's, those it's other foods. It's hard to binge on whole foods. Yeah. The, the, the more you get the processed stuff out of your system, the more whole foods you eat, the less you're going to want to binge. Yeah, I truly believe yeah. it. Well, Dr. Livingston, tell people how to find you and your work and how they can follow you. A bunch of free stuff for you. Um, if you go to neverbingeagain.com and click the big red button, you can get a free PDF of the book if you want to. There's a reader's bonus list where you get a free PDF. Um, you can get it on Amazon in the Kindle, Nooker, PDF, or print or Audible formats. Completely um, free. Are, no. Okay. No, there, are char- there are charges for the Amazon versions, but you can okay. get a completely free PDF if you want it. Um, we used to give the Amazon book away for free, and we ran into a little trouble with that. So recently we had to start charging for it. Um, but, but you can get it free in PDF if you want to. And the, the words are still the same and, and um, yeah. you don't have to pay, you don't have to pay for them or, or else it's 10 bucks for the, um, the regular version. Um, but I'll give you a couple of other things that are kind of important. One is that you and I have been having a very abstract conversation, a theoretical conversation about what works and what doesn't work. Um, I want people to see how this works in practice. So I recorded a whole bunch of coaching sessions, like full length coaching sessions, where you see people go from feeling despairing and overwhelmed and hopeless to feeling enthusiastic and positive and hopeful uh, in just one session. So I recorded a bunch of those. That's all free. And then I also put together a set of food plan starter templates, which are really uh, sets of rules that would work for any dietary philosophy. So there's there's one for ketogenic diets. There's one for point counters, calorie counters, um, macrobiotic people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not. I I don't want to give you a diet to follow because I'm not a medical professional. But you can see what some people who do follow these diets are doing, and then you can check it with your doctor or revise it to make it work for you. So. Neverbingeagain.com. Click the big red button. You made a goal to change a lot of lives because I don't know if you're repenting your sins to uh, the food. I am. <laughs> food gods. I am. But I am. How many? How many lives do you think you've touched? Any idea? Well, well, we're we're edging up on two million copies of the main books. So I've written six more books since then. Um, I've been on 400 podcasts. I have over a million readers in Psychology Today. So I I think we're making a dent. I think we're making I that. And we, we, we have our own podcast where there are um, hundreds of demonstrations and expert interviews. And, and um, I, I feel like I'm making a difference. Um, yeah, I think so. I think yeah. so. Maybe, maybe it was worth going through what I went through. I know there's some people listening that are going to get so much out of this. So 
Everybody who's listening, send this to your friends and family, somebody that needs this message in their life. Uh, We know that uh, we depend on all of you to continue our work, the work of Dr. Livingston, the work that I'm doing, everything we're doing. We, We really love and appreciate you guys helping spread these messages around the world. So we will catch you on the next episode. Did you guys love that last episode of the Fit and Fabulous podcast? Well, of course you did. And I want to keep bringing you the most amazing content from the most incredible people. And you can help me by subscribing to the Dr. Fit and Fabulous channel. You guys know where the button is. Just click it. It's the doctor's orders.